You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, Refuge family. My name is Sean Seguin. If you if you don't know who I am, I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff at Refuge. Thank you for joining us uh, wherever you're coming from, whenever you're watching this. Um, Man, saddened because today we were supposed to have an in, in-person gathering, as, as Josh mentioned, and uh, just with weather and everything, we, we were playing it safe, uh, but excited for next week, getting to see everybody in person and being indoors, not having to worry about weather issues anymore. So happy for that, but hey, happy Mother's Day, um, and uh, just, just excited to continue this sermon series on Titus. So we're actually not just continuing, but I'm actually going to be closing this out. And, um, and Josh and I were talking about this sermon series, and we're like, man, I wish we could have spent way more time in this book. It, it definitely deserves more time than we were giving it. And uh, we, we had just kind of like, like, oh, we'll hit these chapters, we'll hit these little pieces. And, and really, as we went through, we were like, man, we, we would have loved to, to dive in a lot deeper. Uh, so... We look forward to doing that eventually. Uh, definitely going to redo Titus. But I'll be closing us out, diving into uh, chapter 3 of Titus. And uh, I look forward to that. Uh, we've seen that Paul is, is the one who wrote this letter to Titus. He's a pastor on, on the island of Crete. Uh, this is a community of people who are known to be liars, to be violent, to be insolent. people, Just kind of difficult people to deal with. And, uh, and Paul is like, here's how you're going to build a church. Here's how you're going to teach them to live uh, tra- their transformed lives in the midst of this culture. And so that's what we're getting into today in Titus 3. We even talked about that a bit in Titus 2, having that transformed life and living it out in whatever situation, whatever context you're in. Today we're going to be looking a little bit more at how, uh, how your transformation, your inward transformation, it actually leads you to live it outward uh, in, in more specific ways. Um, but let's go ahead and uh, start off with a word of prayer and, and before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for letters that were sent uh, to, to, to Titus, a letter that was sent to Titus that, that traveled and made it there and has been read and copied and read and copied so that we might be able to have it in our hands today. Uh, thank you for translators and thank you for your spirit which guided all of this. Thank you for what you've done uh, in giving us this. I pray that we would take it and we would uh, be changed by it, by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been around someone who tries to build friendships by creating common enemies? They, they, they will uh, inevitably point out something about someone else that you know that's negative and, and hope that you latch on because their hope is, like, if I can get them to latch on, then we will be closer. They're building your relationship, but they're also creating this, this wall between you and, and you guys and that person. And... and these kinds of people, when you hang out with them, you start to feel, when you start to hear it often, like, oh, this person's this way, this person's this way, you start to wonder, like, how much do they talk about me behind my own back to build their relationship with someone else? This is a kind of, like, divisive personality. Um, And while 
I don't know if any, any of you have experienced uh, this kind of relationship. I know I have. Um, I would much rather spend time with a person who's going to be encouraging me and and share and just sharing what's on their heart and, and not thinking about all these different things and people they're against to build up this relationship. Instead of focusing on the things we hate, uh, the people we hate or whatever, that we would be focusing on, on the things that we love and, and where we want to go in our life and how we might help each other grow. And those are the kinds of relationships I truly value. You see, a peaceable personality is so much more enjoyable than a divisive personality. A peaceable community is so much more attractive uh, of a community than, than one founded on a common enemy. There's something so alluring about a healthy, loving community that encourages one another and lifts one another up. It's, it's something that even Jesus made mention of when he talked about people knowing that we are his disciples uh, by the love that we have for one another. And he prayed in John 17 that, that we would be one in him as, as he and his father are one so that, that people would, the world would know that, that God had sent him. Like, the, the love for one another, the encouragement, the peaceable unity, the, the lifting up of one another is the thing that points people to Jesus and the truth of who he is. There's something so powerful about a peaceable community and as we will see, something so destructive about a divisive community. This, this leads actually to the title of my sermon today, The Power of the Peaceable and the Danger of the Divisive. And this will actually shape my sermon points today, which means I'm only going to have two sermon points. I normally have three, uh, but the way this whole thing was laid out and structured, I, I found myself leaning towards this, these like two points. This is what I saw drawn out, these two contrasts. The power of the peaceable and the danger of the divisive. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 now, the power of the peaceable. Let's go ahead and read that. Verses 1 through 8, Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want, to, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Man, uh, verses one and two get into this, uh, these specific good works. And this is what I wanted to look at. We aren't just looking at positions in society, but this is for everyone, no matter where you're at, begin to function in society in this way. The, while, while in the last chapter we talked about those, those different positions, we talked about those different places in society, this is, this is really about how we interact with society outside of just our, our, our living out the gospel in our current situations. 
And, and I think what it says is that, that what he's really getting at here is that young and old, rich and poor, male and female, all need to submit to, the, to authority and to show gentleness to all people. This is, he's painting this picture of a peaceable community, a community that's not fight, like ready to fight at all, all costs, you know, always ready to push back against any authority figure who's trying to tell them what to do. Paul's saying like, create a peaceable community a community that, that like, not just submitting one to another, but even submitting to your authorities. Like, to think about the fact that, that the Roman government that was, like, this superpower that was over, over everybody, like, kind of, like, keeping everybody under its, its reign, you know, like, holding everybody down. Like, even to submit to them, these people that were really, truly evil people going, like, out to destroy Christians, submit to these people. This is what he's getting at. But all of it is for a purpose. This seems to be uh, to frame the good works that Paul's talking about. This whole chapter is all is it talks about good works multiple times. What uh, what Paul is saying is the, these are the good works we want you to do. And it is it's as if Paul is saying we can put up a fight and try to make the world around us agree with everything we believe, but in a culture of violence and lies and insolence. Let's show these people how Christ can transform us. This is a call to peaceable living. Uh, this, it, it's a call to live counterculturally. Paul sees the power of this way of life, the power of the peaceable. The idea is to understand the idols of the culture in which one lives. This is what Paul is, is recognizing in Crete, the idols that they have there. And then show that Christ offers us a better way. Paul wasn't just saying to be submissive doormats because God says so, right? Uh, Paul is saying that this little growing community has an opportunity to teach their culture what it looks like to be secure in one's place in society, not to not fear being taken advantage of, to not fear what the government can take, and to not fear the opinions of others. To call this church to this peaceable way of life is less about the respect that the individual leaders deserve and more about submitting to the lordship of Jesus. And in fact, while Paul is calling uh, the church to a peaceable way of life, it was actually also a subversive way of life. Because if the entire culture is doing things this way and Paul is saying, no, 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 live differently, Reflect my kingdom values that, you know, like totally oppose the values of the, of the Cretan culture. Live out these kingdom values. Show how Jesus reigns in your hearts and show what that looks like. Look at the difference. So this is not just peaceable way of life, but it's also like subversive. During the first century, emperors would be regularly referred to as Lord, God, and Savior, the view was that the gods had brought peace through Rome and, and that the emperor became this deified savior who maintains peace. So Caesar would often be called God or son of God, Lord, savior. These are all terms that refer to Caesar, that they were referred to Caesar long before Jesus ever came along. And this is actually why I believe that Paul combines these words God and savior over and over throughout Titus. And actually throughout his writings, Lord, God, Savior, Son of God, these are references to Christ. And yet he's doing something. He's taking titles that have been uh, uh, given to a man who was deified to say, let me show you who the true God man is. 
Let me show you who the true Savior is. This is what he's doing. And so when you live this way, because you're not submitting just to an authority figure that's human, but you're actually fully submitting to God, when you, when you recognize that, when you're submitting yourself to Christ, all of a sudden, the reason that this little community can feed their poor, the reason this little community can, can care for their widows and their orphans, the reason the slaves and the free are eating at the same table is because, not because of the peace of Rome, the Roman, the, the Pax Romana, like not because of that, not because of Caesar, not not because of, uh, of this man who claims to be Savior and God, but because of Jesus Christ. There is something so subversive in this way of life, in this peaceable living. And so in their submissiveness, in their gentleness, and in their kindness, they are living counterculturally and subversively overturning the power of Rome. Uh, there's a... a an article published in Baylor, by Baylor University entitled Subversive Generosity it was by K. Jason Coker. Uh, he, I, I love what he writes about this because the way he explains the, this, uh, this generosity that actually began to transform the Roman world and the way the world viewed Christianity, uh, even to imagine the fact that Christianity was growing like crazy, and I think it's for this kind of subversive Submissive, submission, this kind of subversive generosity, this kind of subversive like l lifestyle. And so uh, I love what he writes here. He says this, the woes in Jesus's Sermon on the Plain echo James's condemnation. Woe to you who are wealthy, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are now or who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. This is from Luke 6, 24 through 25. The selfishness of the wealthy in these passages stands in stark contrast to the generosity of God, God's people, and to, to God's reign. Partiality towards the wealthy, um, as we saw in James two, as we see in James two one through eight, and the desire to keep one's possessions for oneself, Acts five one through eleven, may be exemplary of Roman social practices, particularly patronage. Patron, by the way, patronage uh, is, is the system where like someone who has more money will give to someone who has less money and they will expect of them to reciprocate something. They, they're like, they're, they continue to honor, they expect honor back from them and, and whatever they might ask. So this, there's this, this, this kind of like patronage society, like I'm gonna expect something if I'm gonna give. But here he, he, he goes on, sorry, he continues. Um, I lost my place. Um, but they are antithetical to the defining characteristic of God's reign. God's generosity opposed Roman selfishness, which is the primary reason for understanding generosity as subversive. A community that held everything in common and respected the dignity of every person was fundamentally different and contradictory to Roman social practices based on a hierarchy of humanity. Rome had created this hierarchy. Rome had created these systems. Crete has its systems and its hierarchy. And, and Paul is saying to Titus, Teach them to live so differently, so counterculturally, but so beautifully that, that the culture around them cannot help but to desire what they have. How would we make the gospel, how could we make the gospel more tangible, live subversively, 
in, the, in, in, in Austin, Texas, in the, the kind of like the, the kingdom of this world, what if in a culture that, that sinfully idolizes power, we could be a community that displayed the servanthood of Christ? What if in a culture that sinfully idolizes uh, individualism and freedom, uh, the freedom to be able to do whatever they want, right? Uh, we could be a community that, that displays the beauty of laying down one's own rights for the good of another. Or in a culture that so values wealth that it's willing to displace the poor just to create more wealth, what if we were a community that, is, that, that visibly and tangibly cared for those who were displaced, for the poor, for those who could no longer afford their homes? Man, just to be a little community that loves one another so well, that's lifting one another up as, as we see needs that we're meeting them, as we serve one another, as we live in this peaceable manner, caring for, praying for our leaders, right? Like even not talking trash about uh, all the leadership in the government, but to be able to go, I'm going to speak, uh, speak blessing, I'm going to pray for that person, I'm going to pray that God would use them and move them, and that the world would be able to see us in a different light and, and ultimately living a totally different lifestyle. Not saying we're going to just do whatever the government says because we want to do whatever the government says, but, but saying like, I want, to, I want to see God move in, this, in, in the United States. So I'm going to be praying for my president. I'm going to be praying for our governor. I'm, you know, I'm, to be thinking about those leaders, to be thinking about those and praying for them, to be posting online positive, like positive, like, prayers for them, to be thinking about how we can show the world around us that we live differently, to serve, to love, to, to lift up, to, not, to be more focused on caring for others than, than the wealth that we might receive or the wealth we might lose. But again, as we saw in, in the last chapter, this call to do good works is, is birthed out of the transformation that one has already experienced inwardly. And so here we see, we saw in verses 1 through 2 to, to live uh, peaceably, but this becomes because of the peace that has been given to us. We see this in verses 3 through 8. Paul reminds Titus of the transformation that's already taken place. He reminds Titus of, of the, the church that that was uh, be, uh, the, the church's state of mind and, and heart before coming to Christ and then reveals how that initial change uh, took place. I think it's worth pointing out here. I think it's worth pulling this whole piece apart um, that Paul talks about salvation, sanctification, and our call uh, because he, he because he ends. I think it's important to pull all this apart because he ends this section saying to them that that insisting on these things, insisting on them, will help those who trust God to do the work that they are called to do. So understanding how this individualized salvation works and why it works the way it does and trusting in Jesus in this particular way actually somehow begins to move us into action. So when we, when we truly understand the gospel, it leads us to doing good works. And verses four through seven give this beautiful Trinitarian picture. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all mentioned in this, in this thing. Um, and, and the Father serves us through the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then again, pushing against that narrative of the imperial cult, thinking of God, the, the Father and the Son, and this Savior who saved us, not, not uh, the emperor, not, not Caesar. 
We are reminded that, that we didn't save ourselves, nor did Rome save us, and it was his mercy and not our works that saved us, but even more that we were saved by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. So even though this, this chapter is calling us to good works of, of peaceableness, Paul makes it clear that the only work that serve, uh, that the only work that saves is God's work. It's not our work. The, the, the work that brought the peace that makes it possible for us to submit in a healthy way, the, the, the peace that comes that, that makes it possible to care for others in a healthy way, not trying to get something back from them like in the patronage uh, you know, idea, the patronage systems, but instead a, a work that's worked out in us through salvation, through the regeneration of our hearts. Once our hearts are prepared for him, and let, let me, I, I kind of wanted to lay this out a bit again, but, but regeneration and renewal is the change of our hard and sinful hearts into a good home prepared for God, a throne for God. It's, it's prepared for God to come and do whatever he wills in our hearts. That's what regeneration and renewal happen. That's what happens when regeneration and renewal happens. Um, but once our hearts are prepared, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, God poured out his spirit on us abundantly. And not only that, but we are justified or put in right standing with God by grace. So our hearts are prepared and we are put in right standing with God and the Spirit is poured out on us and, and, and this gives us hope for eternal life and this whole individual salvation process, this beautiful Trinitarian picture of peace being poured out to us and given to us. It gives us the confidence that we are participants in the kingdom of God that is invading this world through those submitted to the lordship of Jesus. So when we went from dead to alive, from blind to seeing, from evil desires to righteous desires, from con condemned to counted as righteous, from being enemies of God to being filled with his presence, when we did all that, when we, when we insisted, when we in, and, and when we recognize all that, when we insist on this as the reality of our transformation, as he says in verse 8, to insist on it, we will naturally see good works as possible and meaningful for, li for our lives and those around us. And in verse 8, when Paul mentions that good works are good not only for us but for those around us, it's clear that our work is evangelistic. This is the power of the peaceable that I'm talking about, which is ultimately birthed out of the power of the Spirit in our lives. The good, work, uh, the good works we're called to are signs that we serve a different king and are part of a different kingdom. The things we do matter for the world around us. The way you love others, the way you submit to your leadership, uh, to your authority figures in your life, the way you do these things, not because of a fear of any human, but because of a, a, of a submission and fear of God, submission to and fear of God. But Paul doesn't just want to point out the power of the peaceable. He also wants to point out the danger of the divisive. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11 here, the danger of the, of the divisive. Verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. 
Verse nine always reminds me of the hours of debate I've, I've had with friends over things like Calvinism versus Arminianism, or maybe even Molinism. Um, and if you don't know what any of those things are, you're probably better off for it. Don't even worry about it. Like you can go Google it, whatever, but yeah. Um, pointless debate after debate after debate over things that we can truly, tr really not understand. But I would, I would have these long debates over unsolvable questions, the sovereignty of God and the freedom of humanity, right? Like, how do we figure out how this all works? And even I, the idea of like these gene genealogies and disputes about the law and, and all things that I, that I have squabbled over. These are all things I really genuinely have gone through and looked at and gone like, well, what about this? Or why, why do these genealogies not match up or whatever? And you could spend just hours arguing with people over like trying to show the veracity of scripture and how true and wonderful it is. And, and, and then like, you know, just go and go and go and go and really not come to any conclusion because in the and most of the time when we're just debating, the goal is not to hear and understand another person's opinion and maybe be willing to have our opinion change, but it's typically, in my own heart, oftentimes in a debate, the goal is to convince them that I'm right. And so, uh, you know, these debates go nowhere. And Paul is saying, avoid these pointless debates. Now, it doesn't mean don't defend the faith. That doesn't mean don't stand up and, and tell the truth and, and be willing to, to speak up when it's necessary. Don't, don't uh, back down. But there's a difference between like just trying to prove someone wrong over these small things that cannot be resolved at t oftentimes and, uh, and lovingly and encouragingly uh, caring for someone and showing them like, hey, here's what I see. I would love to learn what you have to teach me. And I hope that you're willing to learn as well, that this becomes more of a discussion than a debate that we would both walk away changed by this and not go away just arguing, which is typically what, what we see, especially we see like over like social media, just like comment after comment after comment after comment, right? These debates, they just leave to division. And I would guess that the debates that the Cretans were dealing with probably had more, uh, less, uh, had more than small differences of interpretation, probably had some like big heretical things they probably had to deal with. But, the, but Paul speaks to them like these worthless debates, like these, these worthless words, we're wasting our time. But the point remains the same here, that, that, that we need to avoid these kinds of just arguments for argument's sake. This is, the, to be argumentative was very much a picture of a Cretan person in this, in this time period. Like, we're just going to be argumentative. And so that peaceable way of life, again, it's, it's pushing its way back through and all this. Uh, but these kinds of arguments do nothing to cultivate unity or display the lordship of Jesus. They simply divide us. And in fact, these words are compared to the works uh, mentioned above. The works are called useful, but these, kind, these kinds of words are called useless and worthless. So in our culture where there are pointless debates all over, especially on social media, as I just mentioned, but let, let us stand out as those who aren't participating in these useless, divisive debates. Sure, take a stand when necessary, right? But if it's more about ego than love for others, let it go. Leave it alone. Definitely, definitely take some time. Think about this. Take some time to pray before you comment on something, before you send that e angry email. I could probably write a novel. I'm not kidding. I could probably write a novel with the amount of divisive words I have deleted because the Holy Spirit said to delete. Paul doesn't stop. 
with avoiding these debates, though. He actually says to reject the divisive person. And it seems that the, 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 the divisive person is a person who has a tendency to try to create uh, factions instead of build unity. And the divisiveness definitely seems to be dealing with heresy of some sort because the word for divisive in, in the Greek here is where we get our English word heretic from. So uh, this is de- dealing with a, the kind of person who is a heretic, who's pulling people away and trying to teach something totally different and pushing against uh, the, the rest of the community. Avoid, reject the divisive person. The point is that the kind of person who's actively working to destroy what the apostles, he's the, this would be the kind of person who's actively working to destroy what the apostles are building. Paul's telling Titus, the, the pastor of this community, to reject a person like this. Ultimately, Paul is calling the leadership of the church to protect the church. We, we already saw in chapter one that there are households being destroyed by these kinds of divisive individuals. So we can see the importance of the church of church discipline in situations like this. Man, talking about church discipline is is difficult. I'm one who believes church discipline should be limited as much as possible, and most of the time, I think it happens in like a one-on-one basis, not from like leadership dealing with, but like brothers and sisters in Christ holding each other accountable and it's dealt with like loving one another encouraging rebuking one another that stuff happening on a day-to-day basis is typically what's happening and and thankfully we all of that all the little junk all the little disputes don't don't all have to go through some sort of like uh church like official church discipline um but, but those, those one-on-one uh, rebuke, those moments of rebuke, moments of repentance are, are really important for, for us looking, being able to present a, a community that is reconciled and at peace with one another, able to handle taking critique, but also, and not making it an identity issue, but, but saying, thank you for calling me closer to Jesus, drawing me closer to Jesus. But occasionally there are things that are happening, things that are much more uh, malicious that need to be dealt with. Um, when I was a youth pastor, uh, we had a, there, there was a, a guy who would come to our youth ministry. He was 18. He was a senior in high school and our youth ministry had middle school and high school all together. Um, and this, it was a pretty big youth ministry, uh, big, I mean like, like a hundred or so, um, kids that were at this ministry. And, um, and so it wasn't like we could keep track of everything that was happening all the time. But we had this guy that would come in and we, we, were, we found out that this guy was kind of like luring girls in that were like 13 years old, 12 years old, 14 years old, like what, whoever he could find that would go home with him, right? And, um, and man, as a, as a leader over this community and, and the other leaders that were part of that, we, we saw this, this as a, a serious threat to our, our flock, to our people, to our, our, our kids, you know? And so we told him he was not allowed to come back anymore. Uh, we, we talked to, we let the parents know like, hey, this is what's happening. Uh, we're asking that this kid doesn't come back. Um, and, and ultimately we would have even been right to uh, put this kid's picture on the screen and say, hey, everyone, stay away from this kid. Ladies, stay away from this kid. He's out to, to, he's, he's out to harm you, you know? Like, he's not there for your good. He doesn't care about you. Uh, it would have been in our right, as, as pastors, as shepherds who are caring for our people, to say, watch out, this guy is out to, to just 
find girls and, and mistreat them, you know? It would have been appropriate to even go that far. And, and yet, you know, like, we, we, so we, we took the steps that we felt comfortable with at the time, but man, I'm just saying, like, church discipline at times is necessary. When you have a person who is out just at, at that part of that community simply to destroy people, simply to take advantage of people. And so when we talk about church discipline, I think people sometimes get uncomfortable. They forget there are actually people out there doing that because most people who come to a church aren't out there to like come in and take advantage of and destroy and, and rip people apart from the community and stuff like that. So it's hard to imagine that there are actually people out there doing that. And so this is, this is the, what Paul is saying, deal with these people. Reject a divisive person. Protect them. And this isn't just for church leaders. Yes, church leadership needs to do this and, and, and be, be caring for our people, looking out for, for these kind of proverbial wolves in sheep's clothing. Like, yeah, we, we need to be doing that. But also, like, man, when you see someone who is, is constantly drawing people to a position or whatever that's, that's opposed to the teachings of, of Scripture, of, of the apostles, you know, that, that is opposed to the work of, of the Spirit. You know, when you see these things happening, they're constantly drawing people and pushing others out and kind of creating their own little, their little things and, or taking advantage of others. When you see these things, rebuke. Be willing to rebuke, not just because you... Uh, it, not just because you think that you're better than them, but because... Not because you think you're better than them, but because you care about the people who they're taking advantage of. You care about this church. We want to see refuge thrive and grow, and we need, we need to all be caring for and loving people well when we see people being taken advantage of, that we would call those things out, that we would rebuke those who need to be rebuked in a, in, in, with the intent to restore and love and restore people into community. That is the goal, ultimately. Sadly, I wish I could have done that with that 18-year-old that kid. Um, but he didn't want anything to do with us after that, you know. Um, he got what he wanted and he was done. And so, but Paul's been talking about these good works. And I believe that this process, as, as difficult as it may be, rebuking or rejecting uh, a person and even avoiding these kinds of divisive words, uh, these are all good works. In Revelation 2, John is writing out uh, what writing out what he heard about different churches. And one of the things he says uh, is that the church in Ephesus has the good work of testing false apostles and not bearing with those who are evil. As Paul discusses useless words, he adds this work that the church can do concerning those who use useless words to lead others astray. Call them out and if necessary, reject them. Again, we aren't talking about someone who has different theological perspective or, or who sins or who, we all sin, we all have our varying perspectives who, or who even shared their views with someone else, whatever, but someone who's trying to get, convince others to follow their teaching instead of the orthodox teachings of the church. This is the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing, as I mentioned. And the danger of the divisive calls us to the good work of avoiding uh, becoming divisive and even calling out those who continue to be divisive to protect the church from those wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm about to close out, and, and I don't actually plan on preaching the rest of this chapter uh, the, the closing statements part, portion. But I think it's important to note that, that the very last command that Paul gives in verse 14 is 
Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for, the pressing need, for pressing needs. I think this hints at the radical generosity we are all called to, but ultimately points us back to the subversive peaceableness that we are all called to. These good works have in them a, a subversive nature that shows the lordship of Jesus as opposed to the kingdoms of this world. I hope that that we can all see the value of that loving and peaceable community that Christ prayed for in John 17. This is what every this is what everyone desires to be a part of, I think. This kind of peaceable and loving community. This is what uh, oftentimes kingdoms attempt to build but they fall short of when they're not built on Christ. And this, this kind of community displays the beauty and the diversity and the oneness found within the Trinity. Paul is teaching this community how to do good works that display this kind of beautiful community. Peaceable living is birthed out of the transformation one has already experienced from the gospel, but it also helps to transform others to see the good works. And useless words do nothing more than cause disunity and ultimately a horrible witness, right? We, we will continue to preach truths with our words that are valuable and transformative, but we will also live out the transformation we have experienced. This week, try to challenge the culture by, through your sub- subversive countercultural living, like radical generosity and servanthood, caring for the poor, those kinds of things. And repent if you have participated in divisiveness. Repent if you've participated in divisiveness. We want to create a community of, that, that shares and loves and cares for, avoids the, the fighting and disputes and debates over nothing. We want to be a community that is encouraging and lifting one another up. The kind of community that, that the world is looking for. Not a community known by what it's against, but a community known by what it's for. A community known for its love for one another, its love for the world around it, and its love for their God. I'm going to go ahead and close out uh, with a word of prayer, and then you will be sent. Uh, all right, Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray that the transformation that has begun in our hearts would be expressed in our lives, that the lordship of Jesus would be obvious and, and expressed in a way that it is, is clearly, uh, clear, clearly expressed in a way that, that it, it may look similar at times to what the world around us is doing, but man, when they see what we're really doing, how we're not just submitting to authority, but we're submitting to you ultimately, that we're trying to glorify you, that we're, we're giving and loving because of you, I pray that people would begin to see the beauty of the kingdom of God, the beauty of our God. Thank you for all that you're doing. I pray that we would be changed this week. In your name we pray, amen. Have a wonderful week of worship. You are sent. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 